gentlemen, welcome to the Masters. Welcome to the Talking Golf Podcast with me, Hugh Marr. To continue our Masters Week shows, we're very lucky to be joined by putting coach Phil Kenyon. Phil is one of the leading coaches in the game with a client list that includes Rory McIlroy, Henrik Stenson, Justin Rose and Tommy Fleetwood. Welcome, Phil. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Let's, Phil, let's start by finding out a little more about your journey as a coach and how you have gone from playing the game through PGA Professional to, I think, a degree in psychology and now the go-to putting guy for the majority of the finest players on the planet. Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure how I've ended up here, really. So, um, I'd never intended to end up doing what I'm doing. It, I guess, like my, you know, I guess you're going back to like my journey into golf, really. I mean, I, I sort of was introduced to the game by my parents when I was about 11, um, mm-hmm. and fairly early on in my golf career, I got pretty friendly with one of my dad's friends, who was a name, uh, a guy called Harold Swash. So very early on, I was around Harold, spending a lot of time with him, playing golf with him, and you know Harold was a sort of prominent putting instructor at the time. So I've kind of always been around putting and, and coaching and stuff. I, I was obviously at that age, just loving playing the game and uh, yeah. had aspirations to be a playing professional. Um, yeah, I got down to sort of like plus figures at, at 18, and, and I'd been lucky enough to play sort of like for England schoolboys and yeah had had aspirations to play but I also kind of valued the, the importance of education I think like my parents had always installed that in me and I went mm-hmm. to university to to study applied psychology and sports science uh, which I really enjoyed and then uh, I enjoyed it so much that I actually I stayed on and did a master's degree in it and it was at this time I was really undecided whether I was going to turn pro or actually stay on within that field. And you were still playing competitive amateur golf throughout your university career in the UK. Yeah, I was. I, yeah, I mean, what, one. Of, I went to Liverpool John Moores University, which was close to home. So, for me, there was a couple of benefits. I mean, firstly, the course it was one of the better institutes for sports science. But secondly, I could stay at home. It meant that I could really concentrate on my golf, mm-hmm. um, keep me off the booze and all the other student activities. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I played I played a lot of golf. You know, play, you know all the amateur events, British amateur brabbers and stuff like that. You know, all that I could do around my studies. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so at the end of that, um, you know, what once I'd sort of graduated from completing my masters, I was really at a crossroads. Do I sort of utilise my you know qualifications um, yeah. or do a turn pro? And I, I turned professional at that time. Um, to play on, you know, like the mini tour stuff. Um, I think at the yeah. time we had a satellite tour in the UK called Mastercard. Yeah, that's um, right. I think so it turned into the Europro, wasn't it? The sort of forerunner of the yeah, Europro tour. Yeah, it, it did. Yeah. So, uh, so my, I remember my first Mastercard event very well. Thirty-six holes for <laughs> in one day. I remember. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of turned pro. I had aspirations to play. Um, and I, I kind of set myself about like a five-year sort of timetable to where if I hadn't felt like I had I'd achieved anything, then I was going to sort of move on. And How many then, of those um, five years did you see through? Yeah, I actually played sort of for six years, really. Oh, um, yeah. But in, in that fifth year, I kind of knew that I, I, you know, I wasn't really 
progression as a player and, and it was at, at that time I joined the PGA and um, I actually started sort of teaching under the and PGA And you were teaching banner. for or with Harold at this time? Or was yeah, that, yeah, well, that, that, was that later kind on? Of, once I'd t- sort of turned pro and I was playing, I needed some, some way of earning money, so I had various jobs. And, um, you know, one of those was I, I would help Harold out on certain trips or activities, certain clinics. Yeah. I kind of started as sort of like his cameraman in, in many ways. So I'd help him, you know, do his thing. So at the time, you know, I was doing it to earn money. It was obviously of interest and I enjoyed sort of being around Harold. But then, you know, I sort of I had access to obviously, you know, a, a pretty good coach. And I was learning all the time without realizing it. But it was only really until decided I was going to pack in playing that I, I appreciated or I, I, had a, I had an opportunity there. And it was at a time yeah. though when Harold was sort of really slowing down and and he was, you know, why don't you come on, on board and help me um, properly. So, um, like I say, in, in that fifth to sixth year, um, I started sort of focusing more on coaching. I was doing my PGA at Hillside, doing some full swing coaching and uh, then you know, uh, getting more involved with Harold and developing that yeah. side. And how much, I mean, obviously you've gone on a, a pretty significant journey yourself over the last, I guess it must be nearly 20 years now, how much of Harold's philosophies, belief systems do you still employ on a day-to-day basis? Well, uh, you know, Harold, I think if you look at Harold's the core principles of his teaching, then I employ, still employ those. Um, I mean, Harold really came from, from an engineering perspective. And, mm. you know, when I look back, he, he was kind of talking about ball flight laws for putting, you know, 30 years ago. And, yeah. you know, I think he was ahead of his time in many ways because it was only really when technology started to improve and high-speed cameras, the application of those within sort of put a fitting, etc. that many people appreciated some of the things that Harold had been talking about. So his basic principles, um, I would say, you know, are still a cornerstone of, of my teaching. But obviously yeah. I think, you know, my my own experiences as a coach and my and I think in particular my education have kind of shaped my approach slightly differently. And, um, you know, if Harold was here today, God bless him, I'd, you know, I'd... I'd uh, We'd have this conversation, and, and and Harold was definitely a little bit more of a um, he had a more of a method, I think, than what I would have, and he was quite a stickler for for his pupils doing things in certain ways. Mm. Where I think my approach is being a little bit more flexible, um, but you know, a lot of the same principles in what we're trying to achieve uh, still. Uh, it strikes me one of the things that I mean, I've, I've worked with you with various players individually and with players in national squads. And one of the things that's always struck me about how you coach is that you're very good at combining the science, the data, the information, the facts with the artistic, less scientific side of coaching. And then a sort of, I guess, one of the challenges in this day and age is that there's an awful lot of people with an awful lot of information, and they're in one camp, and then you've got the other camp, which are the guys who may, might not have the information, but they're incredibly good at communicating it. Yeah. Is that something you've, you've consciously worked on, or is that something that is just, is, I guess, is that your gift? Um, I don't think it's a gift, because, you know, you're not born with that, are you? I mean, it's something that you acquire. I wouldn't say it's something that I consciously worked on either, but I've been asked that kind of question before, and I think if if you look at my experience or how it's been shaped, I mean, I think when you play golf yourself and you've even 
aspire to be a tournament professional, you understand, you know, the difficulties and complexities of, of that improvement pathway that everyone mm-hmm. goes on, you know, and the perils of it. And I know in particular, you know, at, at times I was probably over-technical and, and sought too much advice and got myself confused at times. So there's kind of like some personal experience from playing the game. Um, I also think like my time, my studies have helped me, you know, in particular the masters that I did was looking at motor learning and control and, and obviously specifically I was looking at golf. Um, mm. So, you know, looking at contemporary theories of learning and stuff like that have definitely helped me further. And then, you know, like your, your day-to-day coaching shapes you, doesn't it, in terms of... Oh, yeah, all make the mistakes. biggest influence. So, yeah, you know, how many, how many lessons you give where you've, you've been too technical and and or confused the confused the the the, uh, the pupil so I, I would say like a combination of all those experiences have, have shaped the way that i teach i mean i take that as a compliment coming from you that you, you say that i mean it's not necessarily something that you're aware of but i i do understand particularly when it comes to, to putting that you know there is very much an artistic side of it particularly when it comes to performance when you're out on the golf course you know you you really want to be free from technical thought but Mm, at the same time you need a fundamentally sound technique so you can execute the skills yeah you 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 need sound mechanics to fall back on regardless of what's going on from an intellectual or psychological perspective yeah and you need to be in a position where you can manage them so knowing what you know now would you have approached your playing career very differently and could it have had any impact on what you're doing now well i'd go back and i think i would do things very differently yeah for sure um i'm glad i did what i did because you know i i got out at a great time for me you know i had enough of a taste of it to learn and uh i couldn't think of doing anything more enjoyable than what i do now so if mm-hmm. i stayed in if i'd have been more successful and stayed in professional golf for longer you know would um you know, I, I could be in a very different position. I might not even be in the game now. So, um, yeah. you know, so, but I would, if I went back, I, knowing what I know now, I would do things very differently. Yeah. Yeah. Would I do anything different? Yeah, of course I'd have done anything. I'd have done a bundle of things different. Would it have had any impact? Yeah. I think I'd probably still be doing what I'm doing now. I might have come to it later on, but I think I'd still be doing exactly what I'm doing now. Yeah. I guess the unknown thing is, is that, Okay, it might might have you could go back do things differently, have more success. It delays the uh, you know the deterioration of your career, mm. you know, professionally playing wise, and do you then miss other opportunities? I mean, certain things. You know, I've been very lucky. I've had opportunities that have presented to me at times. You've obviously got to grasp them, but if I'd have gone down another route, you know, would those opportunities yeah, have presented themselves? So, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for me, you know, I, I don't think I was. Well, I know that I wasn't good enough, and you know I believe that there's you know talent is a very tangible thing, and uh, you obviously you need that you need some degree of talent in line with hard work and you know and all yeah. the other things. But um, I was severely lacking in the in the talent bit, regardless yeah, that's, of how uh, hard I work. And I think that talent debate is maybe not something for for today, but I'd lo- I'd love at some point to be able to discuss that more because I mean we've talked about it a lot. That ultimately I'm a firm believer that talent does exist. Um, yeah. can't believe that for one moment if you do the right things for 10,000 hours you'll end up being an expert if you're not starting with some talent in the first place but as I said we'll leave that for another day um, it's Masters Week you've got five players in the field six players in the field is that right? Um, I've got a couple can... more players in the field oh of course you have 
So I wanted to, basically, we want to try and give the, the listeners out there some behind-the-scenes access to what it's like at Augusta National during the week of the tournament. Let's start by looking at the challenge itself. Is it all hype, or is the challenge that much different to your average PGA Tour or European Tour event? Um, I would say it is very much different. Yeah, the challenge, it's um, its a unique golf course, um, so it represents a very different challenge than what the guys would play, you know, play each week. So uh, I wouldn't say it's hype. I'd say, yeah, it's a very different sort of um, thing that they face. And just, I mean, just the, just the environment as a coach is different in that you're not allowed to walk inside the rope during practice. So you can do all this good work on the putting green, but as soon as they go out and play a practice round, you have to, if you are out with them, you have to watch them outside the ropes. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, you, you're, you're not allowed out on the course um, at all during the week. Um, you're actually not allowed on the uh, practice facilities unless you're invited by a player, and the player can only have one coach Um um, or one person with them at that time. So you you literally have to stand um, with the public, and when your player is ready, they'll invite you over. One of the green jackets will come get you, and you'll go and do your work. So it's a very different, which I actually think works well because um, I think it's great from a spectator's the, perspective. It's great from a spectator's point of view because the putting green and the driving range, play, uh, spectators can see what's going on. It's not cluttered and crowded like you see in many. You know many events, so they've got their own way of doing it. Um, it's a it's a great week to be part of, so you kind of just uh, suck it up and and do what you need to do. You uh, you're not allowed out on the course, and the, the the ironic thing is, of all the tournaments, you probably would want to spend the most time out on the golf course that week as a coach. Yes. Yeah. Um, because particularly for me, because the um, the unique challenge of Augusta are the greens. But unfortunately, we're not being able to to get out there on the course, and it it makes it a little bit more difficult. I remember years ago, Dennis Pugh, when he was coaching Monty, I think he ended up putting the uh, putting the boiler suit on and caddying for nine holes to get inside the ropes during practice. Are you prepared to do that? Um, I would do. Yeah, that, that'd be fantastic. Did they do one in your size? No, but I could borrow one of the kids' ones from the par three contest. <laughs> I just and roll the, and roll the trouser legs up. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I mean, the the difficulty with that is obviously the time that um, yeah. w- with having a few different guys playing. So you've got to obviously try and allocate your time. I mean, the one one thing that I have done a few times, which has really been really beneficial, is to to actually go with with um, one of the players or go with various players to Augusta prior to the tournament. Yeah. Um, that you know they can bring someone with them. So rather than a caddy kind of going, I've gone with the player, and that's allowed us to spend time on the greens, uh, preparing accordingly, and that, that's you know that's massively beneficial to be able to have that time with them and get out on the course and look at the pin positions and stuff like that. So how, how different one, how different is the course when you go for these kind of recce trips beforehand? Is it very different to the week of the tournament? It can be. Um, so I was actually over there on Monday, and I was surprised how firm and quick the greens were you know they almost mm. felt like tournament speed were i was there the week before as well and they were very very slow there's a lot of grass um all over the place you know the fairways quite long um yeah. uh, the greens were sort of quite slow but they recently had their jamboree which is like their major uh, members tournament i think just a few days prior so 
they obviously the course they were probably trying to de-stress the course because they normally get it yeah. up to tournament condition for that you are listening to the talking golf podcast and this week Hughes in conversation with specialist putting coach phil kenyon to find out more about phil and the work his putting school do visit haroldswashputting.co.uk or find him on twitter by searching at swash putting if you're enjoying this show and want to hear our next episode make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast directory Monday, uh, I went with Henrik, and um, the greens were really quick, and it, it was fairly realistic to what you know, like a tournament tournament speed could be. It must be fabulous to walk around there with no fans, actually see the golf course properly close up. It's very it's, different it's, to very different it's to magical, tournament. Week. Yeah, it's very different to the tournament week. It, um, the place looks totally different. Um, it's it's quite open when you kind of walk through the clubhouse and come yeah. out by the f- uh, first tee in the putting green there's this sort of big expanse from the uh, just right as you look of the 18th and you can see down towards like the second green beyond the first fairway yeah. and it's um, it, yeah it's very very different it's a different it's a very tr- sort of tranquil very different vibe um, and it's just as a golf fan um, it's just nice to be able to actually walk on those fairways walk on those greens yeah. and you know, like remember certain shots that you saw as a kid or certain put, and uh, you know it's a privilege really more than anything would be. I think yes. it would be an appropriate word, privilege. It's a special place, and it's it's so difficult trying to explain to anyone who's never been exactly how fabulous it is. It's just such a mind blowing place. Absolutely love it. So, yeah. talk me through typical day week um, on tour. And is it, well, it's obviously going to be a little bit different at Augusta because the sort of limitations on you. But what does Monday through Wednesday look like for you? At a regular tour event. At a regular, at a regular event. Well, sort of Monday. Um, you know, Monday would normally sort of travel into the venue, so that could involve a flight. Sometimes you might get there early on a Monday if some of the guys, you know, if there's not been a tournament the week before, there's been a bit of a break, you know, some of the players could be there on a Monday, so you'd travel early to catch up with some of those. I would say predominantly Monday would be a travel day. Tuesday typically would be up early, you know, could be breakfast around about 6.30, bit of the golf course for sort of 7, 7.30. And I, you know, I think everyone's different in how they sort of go about their work, but I I try and, like, schedule... Uh, players I work with to times, so I would, yeah. I would, uh, you know, the day before I would try and arrange with the different players who I know are going to be playing to meet at specific times and just catch up with them on the putting green. Now, a lot of time at events, it's, you know, it's kind of like supervised practice. It's not like you're giving a player a lesson every week, mm. um, but you're just, you know, making sure that the practice is um, efficient. They're doing the right things. And you're there to help and keep an eye on them in, in, in many ways and problem yeah. solve if, if, if required. Obviously, some weeks, depending on where the player is, you know, there could be like more work, more technical work done, and other weeks it could be just trying to help them prepare to perform. And then, obviously, you know, with some players, you, you'd be out on the golf course. So for me, the, those days are pretty busy. Um, very often, you know, you won't get a chance to sit down or have lunch, and you could be, you know, still there. 7, 7.30 at night. So it would be back to the digs, quick shower, 
something to eat and uh, bed, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know yourself, you. It's not rock and roll, is it? Um, yeah. The best piece of advice I was given was the minute you start doing this for a living, get used to eating when you get the chance to eat, because you've got no idea when you'll get the next opportunity, and sit down whenever you can, because you could be out here for twelve hours quite easily. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I. The day goes quick, that's for sure. And you know, at times when it can be the opposite, where you, you know, you're at an event and you haven't got so many players, and or you've got some gaps, then it's actually I find it boring. So yeah. you've been busy, um, but yeah, it um, can be long days. And then Wednesday, you know, it's same again, really. Wednesday predominantly is pro-am day, so um, you might see guys for a sort of shorter sessions on on the practice screen, but then you've obviously got pro-am, so you could be out on the course with those as well. And then the difficulty is just trying to make sure you see everybody and um, allocate yeah. your time um, prior to Thursday. And if I'm, you know, the, the certain tournaments I will just attend sort of practice days, but then there are, you know, some tournaments I'll stay through the tournament and you're yeah. there for warm up, warm down, um, try and catch some golf out on the course when you can. Um, so again, the tournament days can be long because you've got to have a guy who's first off at, you know, quarter to seven and um, someone else who's last off at 2.30. So you're there for warm-up and, and you're there for them for when they come off the course in the afternoon. So tournaments can be long um, or tournament days can be long, but, you know, it's good fun at the same time. Yeah, it's not a proper job. It really isn't. So you touched a little bit on pre- and post-round routines. What would that involve? I know you're very big on getting players to calibrate properly, get set properly at the start of the day. What else does the warm-up entail? Well, I think you know everyone's slightly different, aren't they? And, and uh, I mean, as a on a personal level with players, I, I like sort of daily calibration in terms of just like the basic um, yep. relative to them. You know, what the, what are the kind of key key performance indicators relative to each yep. player technically? So you're just kind of recalibrating what those fields are on a, on a daily basis, really. But you know, your warm up is a, about getting mentally ready as much as physically ready for putting I mean a warm up in a full swing is obviously going to be a little bit different isn't it but really just yeah making you know getting a feel for your stroke uh, on that day and then really you know going through your routine getting a feel for the speed of the greens um, and getting into your mental processes really getting your mind ready so that when you're on the first hole and you've got a real smelly five foot down the hill left or right put you're you're engaged you know you've already gone through your mental yeah. routine your processes so it feels like the fifth hole and not the first hole personally i think that's something that players tend to neglect more than coaches the importance of getting themselves mentally in a place where they're ready to perform in the warm-up it's not just about loosening the muscles or feeling the ball in the club face or be it that's part of it it's are you ready to walk to the first tee or in your case walk to the first green and ready to go you say you're engaged yeah. you're into it you're ready to to yeah. you know what it's going to take to hit the right shot yeah so post round what's different well you know i think again you, you you're there really just to um help the players reflect you know if you've if you if you've been lucky enough the way you can get out there and watch some of the action or um you know you'd be able to see some of it on tv then you can help the player reflect you know if they have yeah. uh if they're not put it well you can talk through what's happening and and Quite often, obviously, the players are very attached, aren't they, emotionally to, to that performance. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes that, um, the judgment can be clouded, so you just try and really give them some objective feedback and then problem solve, really. You know, what what was it that broke down and help put those pieces back together? Or even sometimes just there as a sounding board. Um, so it's really just being uh, ready for the player. You know, if they put it well, often, you know, they, it's just a slight warm down, recalibration of those feels again. I think during the tournament, you know, practice really, um, trying to keep that same, uh, like, 
tournament focus so I yes. like certain performance drills if a player's going to come and, and uh, practice in between rounds and not just spending loads of time on technique but you know doing performance drills to, to keep that focus um, and intensity So changing tack a little bit we uh, in Monday's show we talked to Paul Casey a little bit about obviously the challenge yeah. that Augusta the, the Augusta yeah. that Augusta presents and we kind of came to the conclusion that putting is probably not as significant a skill Augusta week than it is other weeks is that something you'd agree with or is that something that uh, you would uh, you'd argue I think I mean if you look at sort of a lot of the stats they you know I think that hitting uh, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong here but greens in regulation I believe is a really important stat isn't it yeah uh, Augusta round here yeah and it seems to me there's been a sort of catalogue of winners who are renowned to be ordinary putters, let's say. And particularly in the modern era, the greens have got firmer and faster. While the slopes may not have changed physically, the surfaces mean they play very differently. It puts much more of an onus on being able to ensure that you don't have, as you say, a smelly five-footer five or six times around. The guys that are able to roll it stone dead and tap it in are probably going to gain shots in the field. In, yeah, interesting. I mean, who would you who would you say, who would you categorise as an ordinary putter that's won that event in, in, re, in, in modern day times? Adam Scott, Bubba Watson, Sergio. Yeah, um, statistically. All very good drivers of the ball. What were the putting stats that week? Oh, a very good question, which I had a... I had a funny feeling you'd ask me. I suspect they putted. I mean, I think Sergio last year didn't three putt a week. But Which is an achievement in itself, isn't it? To not have a incredible three putt. round there. I didn't, I didn't know that. Did he not three putt all week? I'm pretty sure that's the case. I mean, the, maybe it's the, the ordinary about, the ordinary putters that overperform or that putt significantly well, better end up winning. Yeah, the thing is, I mean, we're 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 lucky, aren't we? Particularly in our role with like stats that we have available now, so. You can, you know, with Shotlink and uh, all the other data available, you mm. know what, you know, that an average winner will gain on the greens. You know what is required approach play. And you can then even tailor that to venues and stuff like that. So you kind of can develop like a, the makeup of a champion on any course or any tournament, yeah. can't you? Now, with yeah. Augusta, we don't really have all of that data to hand. Um, Correct. True. I think they gather they gather the data, but then they don't release it. Yeah, they gather the data. They have their yeah. own shot link system, but it's not yeah. released. So we don't really have um, the sort of the you know strokes gain data on the on on the greens and stuff. You when you're on site, you have access to that data because I know my, myself. I'll go in and I'll look at that data during the round to see how players okay. are performing during the round and post round and then we'll look at that data you know upon the sort of like the you know post round reflection so they have strokes gained tee to green strokes gained approach play strokes gained putting so internally they do do that but they don't publish it so unless you're during that week you know keeping an eye on what the winners do it's it's hard to to um get a feel but I, I think you'd be foolish to undervalue how important putting is there because it it's extremely difficult you've got to put well to perform yes. average statistically okay you're not going to yes. hold yep. loads of put but then if you consider what putting badly would be on a, on a lesser course you're going to get eaten up at augusta yeah correct yeah you're, you're, so, you're going to be unlikely to play 72 holes so it would be interesting to look at the baseline of um what you know what strokes gain would be at 
at Augusta that week. And I think like the, the, if you look at the challenge of Augusta, if you look at like an average pin position on the PJ Tour, it's probably around about like one on a one and a half percent slope. You go to Augusta, yeah. then the average pin position is on a two and a half percent slope. So the, the greens are and the greens are quicker and firmer. And the, exactly. You know, you, you could be prepping all week at twelve twelve on the stim, and then come Thursday when they've got you know twelve hours of sub air overnight, you've got fourteen and you've got a yeah. wind. It's very difficult because the visuals that you're you're not used to, a lot of the players won't be aren't used to those visuals you know the amount of break that you've then got to play when you're 14 on the stimp on you know a bigger slope than average it's uh it's being able to tap into that visual so the the the, the greens are challenging um because they're difficult it probably to a certain degree i think statisticians would probably then say it makes it more even for certain you know because it's quite hard to you know perform well Mm. It takes possibly takes some of the skill away, you would argue, yeah. because it's so difficult. Like if it was so easy, it would take some of the skill away, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, correct. Yeah. So you could argue it takes some of the skill away, but I think you've still got to put well on those greens to to um, to win. There's been great putting performance over. I mean, Danny Willett when he won, like he put it fantastic that week. And there's a lot of different, you know, many different ways to skin a cat, you know. Aren't yeah. There? So the one thing that strikes me is that the guys who are able to move it. I mean, it's almost cliched now but I guess that you've got to be able to move it right to left to play well uh, I'm not sure that's the case you certainly need to be able to move it right to left at will um, but I do think you need to drive it very well to have a chance of finishing high up in that field because your ability yeah. to then put the ball in the right part of the green to make the next shot significantly easier um, over 72 holes that's got to, got to give you a better chance you've got to have a good all-round game really haven't yeah. you but there probably is more of an emphasis on you know a really good tee to green game than if you were yeah. playing in the Spanish Open or some other course you know yeah. it might be less penal you know when you miss yeah. the greens at Augusta you can you know you short side yourself it, it can be very very difficult to even yeah. make a bogey so there is a premium I think on you know good accurate iron play where you're leaving yourself yeah. in a position to make the easiest par or even give yourself a birdie yeah, so obviously you know it's a premium on the long game but you've also got to be able to convert those chances and you could three put in a heartbeat there, so you basically need yeah, from any range. Um, from any range, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you need your all round game, really. Yeah. Well, Phil, I think we've taken more than enough of your time um, this evening. I know you're very busy in preparation for for the event. Before you go, though, we've got to ask you, giving our uh, erstwhile listeners one simple piece of advice that you think would help benefit their game. Find a coach that you can develop a long term relationship with. Brilliant. Doing, doing your best to advertise the skill for PJ Pro. I like that. Well, yeah, might not be a PJ Pro, but find a coach that you yeah, can develop true. a long-term relationship. Someone that you can that can mentor you. Someone that can can be there for you and uh, help develop your game. I think that's that's the most important thing. You can't do it on yeah. your own. And, no, you uh, can't. Phil, thanks very much for your time. I always enjoy chatting with you, and best wishes to you and your players this week. I hope that at some point in the future we can get you back on the show to continue yeah, would our love discussions. To. Yeah, um, thanks Brilliant. for inviting me onto the podcast and good luck with it, Hugh. Thank um, you, Phil. I really appreciate that. Success with it. Fantastic. Cheers, Many Hugh. Thanks. Okay. You've been listening to the Talking Golf Podcast. This week our guest was Phil Kenyon, specialist putting coach to many of the best players in the world. To find out more about Phil and the work his putting school do, visit haroldswashputting.co.uk. This show was presented by Hugh Marr and produced by Matt Gore of Vicom Business Media. 
You can connect with us or comment on the show via Instagram Talking Golf Podcast or Twitter at Hugh Mark. And if you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast directory.